Okay, good afternoon everyone. Uh, welcome to Oslo, welcome to PRIO, uh, and welcome to this conference, uh, Drones in Civilian Airspaces, Security, Regulation and Imagination. Uh, so this event is part of the Regular Project, a project that, is, that runs for several years and deals with the regulatory, ideational and security aspects of the integration of drones in the civilian airspace. So the project has an academic component and it also has an outreach um, uh, component that deals with how this issue is regulated, how the technology is developed, etc. So our understanding in the project of drones as a socio-technical system, which means a technology that doesn't exist in a vacuum but, but rather comes from society and then impacts society, requires that there is a permanent engagement between what we do in acad uh, academic spheres and what is happening in the real world. So from the beginning, our project tries to establish these linkages, these connections, and uh, we see this conference as an opportunity to, to do this again. Um, in recent years, we've had uh, countless uh, uh, meetings with, uh, with Oslo Police, with UAS Norway, with Avinor, with Equinor, with the Ministry of Transport, with the Ministry of Defence. Uh, and we hope that this serves as an opportunity to, to engage with uh, new stakeholders in Norway um, and beyond, including uh, technology developers. Um, over the last two years, we've also had uh, work that have uh, that established uh, uh, a dialogue uh, with the European Commission, and we have provided inputs. Like uh, a team from from Prio has provided inputs to different uh, regulatory uh, efforts that are happening in Brussels. One dealing with the. Um, uh, increase of preparedness of metropolitan areas in um, in the case of drone threats and another one regarding the European drone strategy that will be launched uh, next week in Brussels. Um, in many ways drones are a fascinating uh, object for us to study and I think that few other technologies have captured our imagination in the same way over the last decades. And there are many, many reasons for this. Um, but what is, what is perhaps more interesting uh, in, for, for our project and the way that we are setting up the conversation is because drones are also a mirror into broader trends that exist in society that deals with how technology is developed, how technology comes from society and becomes part of society as well. And in this process, in this kind of sociological understanding of, of the technology, it's very important to recognize that, you know, our expectations, our ambitions, our visions, our prejudices, our preferences, they become parts of not only the technology themselves, but also on how we deal with them, on how we regulate them, the expectations that we have for them uh, on the society. So we have organized this conference, as, as, as you could see from the program, as a way to establish precisely a dialogue between academics uh, doing research on different, very different aspects of, of drone technology, but also regulators and users and technology uh, developers. So we hope that, uh, that 
precisely this kind of dialogue and this kind of dynamic can result of these events. Um, I would like to thank very much the audience that, that came to attend today and also the speakers that came from different parts of Norway but also different parts of the, of the world. That includes Brazil, that includes Canada, United Kingdom, Denmark. So there's people that came a long way, Spain, that came a long way also to, to be a part of this. So uh, uh, I want to thank very much to, to everyone for this, because I think that this is, this is happening in a an, in an very interesting uh, moment in Norway, a moment where there is also a lot of regulatory efforts in Brussels and elsewhere. So I think that this is really the time to have this kind of conversation. And indeed, I hope that this becomes a space for conversation and, and not just for lecturing. Um, so the first session that we have uh, on our two-day conference is uh, a session that deals with what we can call 3D security. So what are the security and safety challenges uh, that emerge when suddenly we can have you know, more objects flying in the sky? Okay. And for this, we invited, uh, you know, to Johansson from from the, uh, the the Oslo police, who is one of the key actors when it comes to, uh, you know, the the drone prob problematic in Norway, but particularly when it comes to the issue of countering drone threats, I would say that he's the key person, and it's really a privilege to welcome you uh, back at PRIO. Um, so, uh, Yanoto will be leading efforts uh, in, in will be leading the efforts of the Norwegian police in acquiring a stronger uh, capacity to respond to drone threats. So I will not enter into details there. Yanoto will reveal as much um, as he wants from that effort. Uh, and then after that, uh, we will have comments by Kristin Sandvik and Arthur Holland-Michel. Both Kristin and Arthur are part of the regular team, so they are part of our project. Kristin Sandvik is a law professor and a specialist on emerging technologies, particularly in, a, in the humanitarian sector. Uh, her work on drones goes back maybe 10 years, it has been highly influential and it's really a privilege to continue to work with her and to have her in our team. And uh, Arthur Holland-Michel, that uh, many of you know as well, uh, is a world-leading expert on emerging technologies. Uh, he is a co-founder and co-director of the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College in the US, that between 2012 and 2020 was really one of the key sources of information you know, at international level about what was happening with, with, the, with the drone sector you know, from all sorts of perspectives. More recently, he has been uh, working for uh, doing some work to the International Committee of the Red Cross, UNIDIR, which is the United Nations uh, Institute for Disarmament Research, um, and he's also associated with the Carnegie Council for Ethics in uh, um, International Affairs. So this is uh, set up to be a very interesting uh, uh, panel. So, Yanoto, Vashigo, uh, you are welcome to give your presentation, I would say about 20 to 25 minutes, and then we'll have the discussion afterwards uh, sitting there. Thank you, Bruno. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, nice to see you. Some of you I met numerous times before. Nice to see you again, Arthur. Long time no see. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, while my presentation is uh, about to 
become ready. Um, once again, thank you so much for having me and for all your kind words in the introduction. And as you mentioned, I do believe that the cooperation between all of us, from academia to um, law enforcement agencies, the industry, uh, it's all a vital part in us uh, to better get a better or deeper understanding about how drones will influence our lives in the years to come. Thank you. <clears throat> so I will try to keep my presentation as short and sweet as possible. I will make sure not to reveal any state secrets. Um, and I will try to focus as much as I can on the safety and the security aspect on drones uh, in a civilian airspace. So, um, the implications of drones has been uh, addressed in many ways for the last few years. And um, they have been pointed out uh, that drones also could represent a potential threat so, as you can see here, uh, PRIO, uh, with um, support from Arthur, uh, was it back in 21, 20? 20. You came out with this report saying something about countering the drone threat in um, a EU-NATO context, which I found very interesting to read. Um, Around the same time, uh, I was a part of a working group in uh, EASA, uh, having a look into uh, the drone incident management at airports. But at this moment in time, drones was not uh, viewed upon as a threat in Norway. That's at least my impression. Uh, because the... Um, the drone threat was something that you could find on the other side of the world in conflict areas, but again, far away from home. Of course, it came a little bit closer when we had the war in Ukraine, uh, but still the drone threat was on a, a safe distance from us here in Norway. And it's a Norwegian saying, or perhaps not just a Norwegian saying, is that um, what you can't see can't hurt you. So it's when you can't see it, it's a, not a problem you need to address in any way. I don't think this saying uh, apply for drones. So uh, when we were writing this uh, drone incident uh, manual uh, for EASA. We had this uh, discussion about how drones uh, represented a security threat or a safety threat towards aviation. And um, back then, we uh, concluded, so to say, that uh, it's both and that it's very difficult when the drone is hanging in the air to decide whether it's a threat to safety, security, or both. 
back again, if you don't have the drone, if you don't see what the drone actually does, or you're able to find a pilot, the intentions are very difficult to uh, conclude with uh, at uh, an early phase. So, when did the drone threat come to Norway? I would say it has been here for many years already, but it uh, was first uh, earlier this year when we saw that we suddenly had numerous drone sightings around uh, oil and gas installations in Norway. We started reading about them in the newspapers. Uh, the public was uh, asked to report back to the government if they did see any drones and then especially uh, in relations or close by or in the vicinity of critical infrastructure. So, needless uh, to say, we got mass reportings uh, for drone um, flights all over Norway. One of our um, issues having this mass reporting is that the quality of the reports, it was not the best. People uh, had seen something up in the air and very often it had some sort of light. Whether all of them were drones, I don't think so. Were the drones amongst them? For sure. But we saw that uh, perhaps one of our uh, major challenges with drones is the part or the word unidentified because if you are not able to identify whether or not it's a drone, it's also very difficult for us to, um, to, to lower the, the, the threat or to say that it's all good. We have uh, sufficient control in the lower airspace. It's safe for airplanes to uh, go in and out from an airport. You do not need to turn the helicopter transporting uh, personnel or equipment to the offshore installations and so forth. So, <clears throat> uh, I guess that this might just as easily become uh, the new normal in Norway and Europe and for the rest of the world having to live in a more um, gray zone normal state in terms of not only drones for sure but uh, but still and yeah you i guess you could say that what we have experienced in norway for the past few months in terms of drone sightings if you take the Gatwick incident back in, how was it, 2018, and multiply by a thousand, we're still in a good place because the number of reports, I don't have the exact number, but I presume that it's skyrocketing. I even read in the newspaper that the police at some uh, point 
ask people not to report any more drone sightings. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah. And I would argue that what happened at Gatwick and what partially happened here in Norway is more or less about how we were not prepared. Uh, in my line of work, we try to be as prepared as possible, but for some incidents, we will always be too late when things first happen. So we do a lot of training um, uh, where I work, but unfortunately, very often, we are lagging behind. We're always somewhere else when the phone comes in. So I do think that this apply also in terms of drones. It's something about how we as a society are able to lower um, the gap between uh, a drone sighting, something happening with a drone, and the point where we can say that we are back to normal, we have the sufficient um, degree of control, we are good to proceed because for sure, there, I guess there were some drones at Gatwick. But I'm also quite confident that when everyone walked out looking for drones, a lot of the drones were something else. And that's also our experience from um, uh, back home. We have identified a lot of stars, planets, uh, planes, uh, lights, um, what is a drone? Actually, it's uh, it's it's a small word for uh, a lot of uh, technological um, things. So I would say that um, the work you're doing now in your project uh, and about bringing us all together is about us together trying to get a deeper understanding on. Um, <clears throat> how we should uh, react, not only to the current threat, but also how we could try to, um, to narrow the gap. Because we do know that, not only in the future, but already today, drone technology is evolving. It's much easier to fly a drone. It's much more difficult to detect and mitigate drones. I can't wait for the 4G and the 5G drones to uh, come into play. So, and the only way uh, in order for us uh, to, to, to move forward and to try to make Gatwick and partially what happened uh, here in Norway not uh, occurring again, then is cooperation. And this is just a brief example of what kind of cooperations I'm talking about. It's what we are doing here today. It's the drone incursion exercise we uh, had up at Oslo Airport back in 21. A uh, very fruitful uh, exercise for uh, numerous organizations. And this would never have been possible without cooperation. We had Interpol, Avenor, we had to find someone who could. Um, lent us uh, a fully operational airport. 
The police, we played a part. We had the industry represented by US Norway and numerous others. And you were there, Bruno. And um, after conducting this exercise, cooperating with the industry and everyone else, we made up this report. And I'm not here to say that this is a very good report, but I would emphasize that this report is available on the internet. It's about sharing as much as you can. Uh, so we don't all need to make the same mistakes over and over again. And for what I know, hopefully we will be able to learn from each other along the way and also find uh, arenas or places where we are able to, to get together. And again, thank you for inviting me because I think that this is for sure a great way for me to meet people I have never met before people I'm sure I will be able to have a good, fruitful conversation with in uh, the, the days and years to come. I'm not the best one when it comes to time, so I don't know if I've been here for 10 or 30 minutes, but I am all through my slides. Any questions or would you like to, um, yeah? Hello, my name is Susanna Sabo from Upstream Online covering natural gas supply from Norway to Europe, which is critical ahead of winter. And uh, I'm receiving numerous questions about the safety around the critical infrastructure. And uh, I'm hearing from the gentleman actually sitting just in your vicinity that Norwegian police is about to receive more than 50 million Norwegian kron in funding allocated from the Norwegian government budget for 2023 to set up a counter drone unit setting up a unit that is properly staffed and trained for the technology and by the technology as well. Can you please confirm the information? And uh, also I'm curious that what shall we expect from this team and when this team will become operational? Isn't it a bit too late maybe? It's never too late. So <laughs> thank you for your question. I'm sorry, uh, I didn't mean uh, as an <laughs> offense. What, 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 what you read is uh, true. Uh, we did receive funding and um, a part of doing working with preparedness we tend to have funding after something happens it's it is what it is that being said for the past three or four years we have been working uh, trying to get um, understanding about drones and the uh, drone threat we have uh, been engaging with uh, uh, numerous suppliers and partners, both national and international. So uh, when um, this happened um, a few months back, we did have something. We were able to deploy quite rapidly with what we had in stock, so to say. And of course, you could argue that this, this funding uh, came uh, way too late, but again, based on our um, uh, former work, we were able to, to, to spend uh, this funding quite rapidly because we knew 
more or less down to the smallest nut or bolt, what kind of equipment that we wanted to uh, purchase. And of course, you can always need more uh, human resources for sure. But you take what you have and then you get some more. In terms of the drone threat, we will never be able to be everywhere at any time. So the, the, um, the, the, the counter drone uh, capability or capacity, it will always be smaller than the potential threat or threat environment. And again, back to everything you do in advance, gaining knowledge, seeing how regulations can or can't be used, training, uh, supporting um, people within oil and gas in better understanding how to protect their facilities against drones. So they can do it by themselves and then we could, if needed, uh, give additional support if the threat level is that high. But again, as for the oil and gas uh, lines, it's, it's, uh, it's a very long pipeline. So you can't be on every meter of the pipeline, but you can do a lot of things in advance. So yeah, perhaps a little bit too late, but we were as prepared as we could. We didn't start off at zero. We, um, so I would say that we came off quite well. It's also one additional thing, that if you are to acquire a new technology, developing technology, uh, doing a lot of, uh, um, you need human resources, but this technology will change. It's very difficult if you gave me 50 billions and you gave me, 500 people that would be very difficult for us to, to, to take into operations because then it will be too big to handle. At least that's my um, point of view. So I think this is a very good place to start off. And it's not always about spending the most money, but more of how to spend your money as clever or smart as possible. Okay, good. Uh, I think that we can perhaps now move to to the chairs and we can have the comments from Arthur and from uh, Christine based on your presentation so you're not to just uh, pick a seat. So who wants to start from you? Uh, I guess I will. Uh, no, I've got one. Um, thanks. Hi, everyone. Good to see you all. It's so nice being back at Prio. It's been three years and I've missed every minute of it. And I'm happy to be talking about this essential topic once again with Jan, who's, you know, for those of you who don't know, he's actually a bit of a celebrity in the counter drone world. I've seen him speak many times on some very esteemed and illustrious stages. Um, but I think this might be my first opportunity to comment on, on uh, you know, a presentation of yours. Um, I have... Um, I guess three kind of reactions um, that could maybe be framed as questions. One is, um, you know, often when we talk about countering drones, we, we, we think about it in terms of uh, what you do when you have a drone in the sky, you know, that you're looking at or that someone's looking at and you need to do something about. Um, at that point, uh, what's available to you or what are known in the security space as downstream measures. Um, 
and it, one might say that at that point it's kind of too late, right? Um, whereas there are, of course, the upstream measures that you can take on that, that may try and prevent the drone from ever being there in the first place. Now, you, you, you spoke about a couple of those, um, but one uh, upstream measure that you didn't talk about, which um, I think is important, is you know, all the law enforcement work that goes into preventing people from you know, actually doing this in terms of intelligence, law enforcement, finding out people who have these plans, looking at, you know, supply chains, if someone's buying a lot of drones, all of that work that perhaps some security agencies are much more reluctant to speak about. And I was just wondering how you see the balance there between that sort of upstream work and the kind of responsive work um, when the drone is, um, you know, right there in, in the sky and you have to you know, track it and potentially shoot it down. Um, the second point I had that, that sort of tacks on to that is, um, you know, the, the incidents that have happened in Norway remind me a lot of uh, a, a ton of sightings that happened in the U.S. a couple of years ago, particularly in the, um, in the Midwest um, and also sites over some pretty sensitive uh, sort of uh, critical and national security infrastructure. But it was never resolved. As far as we know, no one was ever found. None of the drones were ever recovered. Uh, it's unclear what they were being used for. And so I wonder, what is the follow-up? Like, what do these events give you in terms of actionable follow-up that you can do to sort of prevent this from happening in the future? And then my third, again, comment and question, and you touched on this a little bit in response to the excellent question that we got from an esteemed audience member, is how do you anticipate, um, and this is a question I think everyone should be thinking about, how do we anticipate how malicious actors, if indeed they are malicious, they probably are, um, are likely to respond to growing counter drone capacity in states. So we see often very publicly that states are getting all of these new counter drone systems, building up capacity, standing up teams, well, you know, the, 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 the people who want to use drones, they're not just going to sort of say, oh, damn it, okay, well, I guess we're not going to use drones. They're going to try and think of ways to continue using drones. And so I'm wondering what your predictions are as to how that they will evolve in response to that. Those are my thoughts and questions. Thanks again. Thank you. And uh, just so it has been said, when I started off back in 2018, some of my first or and most important sources for information were some of your reports. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, yeah, uh, to follow up your first questions. Yeah, if we are uh, uh, in a place where we need to do active measures towards a drone, we have failed, so to say, because that is, um, that, that is the final step. So uh, if we get into this situation, we somewhere along the way we have failed in our pre um, preparedness because um, trying to do uh, active uh, or to do drone countermeasures, I would say that it needs to be intelligence driven. You need to do as much as you can in advance in order for to make sure that this drone will never uh, do the flight. So um, 
don't know if that answers your question, but uh, that's also back to, to your question in terms of funding. I would say that uh, the most efficient measures, countermeasures, they are close to free. They don't cost that much money. But it's the detection uh, yeah, capabilities and the active countermeasures which costs a lot of money. So if I do get that much funding to um, build my own stuff, I could uh, educate the whole Norwegian police and other stakeholders for, for pennies. Because that's, in the end, it's all about how I spend my time. Um, your second question was about uh, you had made this comparison to drone uh, sightings in the US. And uh, yeah, were the drones there? I don't know. Maybe one or two, maybe 200. But again, back to parts of using detection systems. It's also to be able to say whether or not there is something there. It's not always about catching someone. If we can deploy, as we have had done earlier, just to see that, okay, people see a drone. Can we see a drone? We can see a drone. Is it a very um, uh, potent um, counterpart? No, I can see that there's a flight going in towards Oslo airport. It's about the same uh, time and place. Or we could see that this is um, most likely a star. It's all about trying to make the unidentified identified. Uh, uh, or you will never be able to, to conclude or to, to take it down. Then it will always be hanging over your shoulder. Uh, for your last question, if you could just briefly repeat. Uh, oh, yes. how, how you anticipate you know, yeah. malicious actors responding yeah. to growing. Yeah. So uh, what we do see that uh, most uh, drone flights, they are still due to uh, uh, reckless or senseless pilots. You do also have state actors using commercial off-the-shelf drones acting as senseless or reckless pilots. But if you do have someone who has the, both the intention and the capacity uh, to um, try to uh, go around our uh, are countermeasures like everything from what we do in advance to the detection systems which has been deployed and our countermeasures. I would say it's not that difficult uh, because if you are the drone, you always have the benefit of more or less um, trying to, um, to figure out how to, to circumvent the system. And I would say that the 4G and 5G drones could be a good example of that because, yeah, it's much better to fly the drone, but then the more traditional countermeasures like uh, jamming would be much more difficult uh, to, to use successfully. So it's, um, 
It's kind of a cat and mouse hunt, and for countermeasures, we will always be leaping behind. Um, but we do have some thoughts about how we can, can proceed. But again, back to us working together, having the industry, having academia, and other stakeholders working together, trying to, to, to do as much as possible before we have this drone, we are not able to... To, to do something about. Then it's always good to have a plan about uh, hiding uh, some duck and seek. Um, so it's, um, that's always a possibility if you are threatened by a bear, a man with a rifle, a knife, or a drone, uh, run for cover. It's, so there, there are no silver bullets, as they say, in, uh, in, uh, in this. So. But still, it's, for us, it's very important to look uh, into the future and the near future. Kristin. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I've been out of drone research for maybe four years. So I did this work between 2011 and 2018, mostly with humanitarian organizations and the UN and so forth. Um, I'm based at the Faculty of Law when I'm not here, teaching robot regulations and legal tech. Um, so on, on my way here, I spoke to one of my colleagues, and she, I, I, I my office is eighth floor on Ando Monsieur Deca. It's on a Tulin Leca. For those of you who are familiar with Oslo, it, it's a great sort of tall building just behind the law faculty, pretty near the castle, the parliament, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And she's like, so. This is great, reminding me, I just want to send up this drone to take a picture of the office building, our floor and the eighth floor. Can I just do this? I just go and buy it. And I'm like, I don't think that's such a good idea, but I'll ask someone. And I can just promise you he's going to say no. Um, but, but it's a little like coming to this party where you've been absent and then you're back and you're, you know, there are lots of new guests and new sort of customs and new practices. So I just... Three things come to mind when, when I listen to you. And, and the first thing is you talk about gray zone, you know, how we're going to have to get used to this kind of ambiguous and continuously evolving threat. So exactly what is this threat? So, so for this project, I, I work on vertiports, which kind of didn't exist when I was working on drones last. But, but now this idea that we're going to have this urban infrastructure and we're going to have various vertiports across the city, across a sort of semi-urban area, and, and we're going to fly these drones from A to B and then recharge and so on and so forth. So, so there's this idea of what exactly is this catastrophic risk scenario, right? We're not talking about data privacy or some oil executive having, you know, a not so flattering picture taken. We're, we're talking about catastrophic incidents. Um, but for the public to understand these, um, I think more work is needed. Um, and, and the second one is, is this, you know, we're, we're looking at the very threatened, changing threat landscape, but, but also the costs of what you can do. So, so there's been a bit of talk about, you know, closing airspace. No, please don't close airspace. And, and you know, the further along UAM gets or any sort of regulated drone traffic, the higher the transaction costs will be. Because services will stop, uh, people will might lose licenses, you might get disruption into basic deliveries to rural areas, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the problem is, right, so you can close civil airspace and, and sitting in a plane, and, and if somebody threatens you to shoot it down, you know, you, you'd like to stay on the ground. But the worst thing you can do is shooting down the drone. So for the threat actor, it's much less threatening as well. 
So, so how, we, how we think about this changing transaction cost and what we can do, I would like us to have a more public debate about. And the third one goes to this, is it a bird, is it a UFO, did I just not clean my glasses and there is a black speck over here, I think I'm seeing it. Um, you know, what is a drone? I'm sure like half the respondents that called you didn't really know what critical infrastructure was either. They just thought it was a nice building or something they thought was important. <laughs> it's my, my old school, it's, it's my, my shopping mall, whatever. So, so this, you know, education, right? So very often in, in social acceptance projects, social acceptance seems to be something that has to be done and, and unfortunately not very often properly done. Um, but I'm, I'm not really talking about educating the public for the sake of social acceptance, but, but to keep this manageable. So, so I call this techno-legal consciousness. So you have sort of a public understanding of the technology, of the risks, of the legal rules involved. So for example, if you know that nobody's allowed to, fl allowed to fly their drone over Kaluhan, you know there's something illegal going on. Um, so, so there's, and then your rights as a consumer, as a citizen, you know, what do you have to sort of accept? And, and then try to sort of, this technological consciousness, try to bring it uh, and, and engage with people and, and sort of, you know, just to stop everyone from calling you. Um, given that then it becomes very difficult to engage in a constructive dialogue with the public about a drone threat. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's changed a lot. So just before these oil installation incidents, there was an accident in Bergen where the Norwegian commercial television channel TV2 lost control over their drone. It flew through someone's uh, window in their lunchroom. It was a law firm. Haha. <laughs> but the senior partner didn't have his kids for lunch, right? So you can just, uh, there was a bit of glass around. I think somebody got some scratches. I'm, I'm scheduled to speak to the lawyer, but also the police wants to drone, uh, the report is out. But you know how badly this could have gone? If the kids have been scared or even, you know, you can just imagine worse, right? You just need a couple of shards of glass and then you have a very, very serious incident. So, so in order for this sort of to develop at all, I, I think just more robust, I don't want to call it crisis communication, but I, maybe just communication around this technology I think is, is needed. Thank you. Thank you. So um, a lot of uh, interesting questions. I will try to all <laughs> answer them as, as good as I can. Uh, for, for the first one, when I mentioned uh, uh, a gray zone, what is a gray zone? And that's partially um, the thing with gray zones. It's very difficult to distinguish whether it's someone's uh, reckless use of a drone. Is it a criminal? or is it a state actor with malicious intent? So, and very often it's very difficult to distinguish between what is what. So, so therefore you could say that since we have the ongoing war in Ukraine, we have had some uh, reports from the police security services stating that there are um, a threat, uh, a spy or potential sabotage threat towards uh, Norwegian uh, infrastructure, then it's kind. Of, it gets kind of messy because, as again, as long as we are not able to distinguish between them, then it's very difficult for us to say who is what or what is what. So um, that's why I use the word grey zone 
having it being so difficult to to distinguish uh, good from bad, so to say. Uh, about your friend wanting to fly her drone uh, over the offices. It was more about public education. It's public education, but it's a very good question because I do think that uh, up to this point, most people has viewed upon drones as a toy. First and foremost, it's a toy. None of us. None of, none of you, uh, for sure, but uh, everyone else, most likely. That uh, being a toy, then how could that be so regulated? It's just a toy. It's a small flying toy giving you the opportunity to take great pictures. So uh, the answer is, of course, no. Uh, is it possible for her? Yes, but there are uh, some um, steps she needs to take in order to be able to do so. And I think that this is a very good example because if we are to educate the public, when you buy a drone, you are now uh, um, uh, told uh, to give up your name and your number. But does it come with any instructions saying something about the regulations in Norway? How, is it something on top of the box or is it like, what's your name, what's your number? Here's a drone, have a safe and happy flight. So I think that from the moment you are to purchase the drone, this kind of um, simple educational uh, material should be more or less on top of the box. So I think that that could, of course, be one step, and there are others. My, uh, one of my concerns is that we, by not being able to educate, but we more or less every week hear about the drone threat on the TV and the radio, then what you, we do with technology and things we don't understand, we try to ban it. So, uh, as most of you know, there was a discussion uh, going on whether or not we needed a national uh, drone ban in Norway in order to uh, address the threat uh, earlier um, uh, this year. And bear in mind that there are uh, measures to be taken in order to educate the public. I do not think that a drone ban is the way to go because bear in mind that people with malicious intent or the senseless one, or the reckless one, they don't care about bans. So bans and regulations are only valid towards people seeking information, trying to do the right thing. So most likely you will not um, um, kind of touch upon the right people by a national drone ban. But of course, it's... Um, I mean, it's a finite resource, right? So, I mean, the ban, if something extremely bad happened, you, you know, you need just to explain to the public the degree of badness, and then a ban is useful, but not as an everyday tool in your, your toolbox. No, it's a kind of a tool in our toolbox, but it's also great fun uh, to, to fly a drone on your time off. Uh, so it's... Uh, drones are mostly used for good things. And... Um, but, it, but it's difficult. It's very difficult. You could, of course, say that by uh, having a national drone ban, 
it will be easier for us to identify uh, the ones with a malicious intent. But, yeah. But when you keep saying malicious intent, I mean, what exactly is, is the maliciousness consisting on uh, as, as of what you're at liberty to share with us here? Uh, this is, uh, in general, you could say that uh, malicious intent could uh, be everything from causing some kind of disturbance or nuisance to planning for uh, sabotage. You can use it for intelligence purposes. And worst case scenario with drones, you could use it to carry explosives. So it's everything from nothing to uh, the worst case scenario. So um, it's, uh, it's uh, difficult to say, but in, in some cases you could say that the, the, um, the nuisance or the disturbance is just as bad. Um, Nice. I was just because I've been thinking about this, about you know what sort of risks societies should be able to carry, um, and at least here in Oslo and in other sort of metropolitan areas, the tolerance for e-scooter accidents, unregulated, ridiculous kinds of competitions with you know hundreds of thousands of them just hanging around, people being injured. I mean, I'm quite surprised about sort of municipalities and and how how willing they've been able to be to be you know to let people injure themselves but but maybe we just have to live with a greater degree of that drone risk but but i think if if we're going to ask the public to to live with a greater degree of risk then i think we should also ask the industry to be maybe more transparent about their visions of worst-case scenarios. So for me, at the moment, this would be in a not-yet-existing, fully-functional vertiport infrastructure where you had a catastrophic fire on a recharging station on top of a building with lots and lots of apartments. I mean, then you're starting to look at a very large mass casualty event, potentially. But, but that's, you know, it, that's just maybe 10, 20 years into the future. But I'm just wondering about, you know, maybe these disturbances... Maybe this isn't terrible. You know what I mean? Maybe fewer things should be listed as malicious intent. Maybe. Did you want to comment first? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess jumping in on that, you know, I th all of us, well, f most of us in this room, I'd imagine, we spend more time thinking about drones than most people do. And we might take for granted how interested the regular citizen is in regulations vis-a-vis -vis drones, their rights vis-a-vis -vis drones, what you can and cannot do with drones. And so it's just perhaps a note of caution, which I think piggybacks off what Kristen was saying, about um, being realistic about the amount of bandwidth that the public has for being educated about drones. Think, for example, about cybersecurity risks, something that affects every single member of the public, and how little most people really care and how little attention they have for actually being educated about, about cyber risks. None of which is, you know, to undermine what, what you're saying, but just a thought out there about, I don't know whether it's to do with making people accept a higher level of risk or just being realistic about how much we actually can communicate about this risk, especially in the absence, and this is where it gets really grisly, of any majorly catastrophic event that you can point to that has happened and be like, okay, now I've got your attention, you know, now pay. Now, you, now we need to do something about it. I'll just briefly comment that I think that your example uh, 
it was really good because for most people, I would reckon that these are also just toys, making it fun to move around in the city. So the technology came first, and then we started chasing them with regulations. There are still a lot of people out there not reading these regulations, not being um, compliant with the regulations. And you have so hundreds of people getting injured each year. But it's like, well, still it's, it's a real fun toy. So it's, I think the comparison to, to, to them uh, is, is quite relevant, actually. But you do have regulations, and you will, when people are educated, you will still have some people not being able to be compliant. Okay, very good. Uh, we have now some time for questions and comments uh, from the audience. Um, thank you for a very interesting presentation and interesting comments. My name is Summer and I'm doing a PhD at Prio with the regular project. Uh, my question is about uh, this development that's taking place in EU generally when it comes to regulation and this push to integrate drones. Um, and we have regulations on civilian drones and now we have regulations on use space where uh, things are developing at a very higher pace and we are still struggling with this uh, fundamental problem of countering drone threat. How do you see that development? Don't you think that, and what Christine also pointed out about vertipodes and all those developments, uh, whilst we are still trying to see how and if we can counter any drone threat, I mean, if it's there and, and you, you already are developing things on top of civili civilian drones, while we can't handle those issues, don't you think that that pace is a little too much for for current situation and that the that the EU or these policymakers should just take it a little easy uh, in that sense uh, to actually ensure more safety and security. I'm, I'm asking you because you are actually in the field and you know you know more stuff that you cannot even talk about here. And in that bigger picture, how do you see all of this happening? Thank you for your question. Um, there is no easy answer to your question, um, I presume. But, but again, technology will always uh, be ahead. We, I do not think we can um, stop technology from developing. So, uh, but there are a lot of initiatives um, at this moment in time. So... Um, I don't think, if even if I were to say that, please slow down, I'm not ready. The world, it doesn't work that way. So I think that it's more important for us to see how we can adapt and perhaps to a certain point also overcome these issues in the future. But then we also need to make sure that the, once developing the drones and the drone regulations, they don't forget to um, talk to the ones on the countermeasure side and vice versa. Again, it's all about finding uh, together, having the right people, discussing things at an early stage as possible. Christine, do you want to add something? Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I, I think that's this idea that technology always comes first and, and we always run after. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, it's true, but, you know, with the type of infrastructure ecosystem projects we now have, I mean, 
you can have the technology as much as you have, but but in the long term, if you don't have an air corridor, if you don't have licenses, if you don't have an insurance system, if you if you know if you're strictly not legal, uh, funding is going to run out. You're not going to get any sort of large scale sustainable funding to do what you do. You're not going to have a business model. So, so I just think that, you know, and then we're back to educating the public so we can have a democratic discourse about this. So would we like to privatize airspace for commercial services? Would we like to publicize airspace for public health services, first responders, firefighting, et cetera, et cetera? Should that sort of our joint airspace, which is a public resource? It's not just sitting up there empty waiting for some dude with a startup to sort of enter, right? So, so I think just to have this conversation, and I may be more optimistic about the public than you are. I, I think they sort of can be encouraged to act. Um, we know from the research that noise is, is an area we still need to know much more about, the gendered impact of, of noise, where noise is going to fall in a city with large socioeconomic disparities, for example. Uh, what about the wildlife outside a city? So I think we just need a better conversation about what we're going to use this public space for. And, and I think you guys fall in there. But I don't think we're in sort of like technology runs fast, so we have to sort of place the innovators and, and try to sort of run after. I, I think we're we're not there. There's nothing from the last 10 years that, that suggests that this is where we are in civil airspace, at least. Christian Primoni, ITS Rio. And um, I'm quite curious, actually, for one, one specific aspect of what you're saying. So you're saying that in the past there were there weren't that many, well, that many reports of drones in 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 Norway as well, and then there is that well, a thousand fold uh, pickup on that. And I was wondering whether this was not just the fact that people were more aware and that you were requesting them to to give uh, information on on that. And on and then there's a question there. So how were you collecting this information? You mentioned calls, but I, I wonder whether there was sort of a an app or if it was just something that you asked people, then people would actually use the phone and go and call the police. And, and whether you had some sort of a I don't know, AI or any, what was the, the way to sift through all those types of information on that? That's my question. I just have a tiny little comment on the idea about education. And I was wondering whether it's, it's just education or it's not more like the architecture of how you, uh, you know, organize drone use. So, so my comparison would be, you know, seatbelts. You know, if it's just about education, maybe today nobody would, or a very low percentage of people would use seatbelts. But if you do an architecture, that's the first thing that you do, it's put your seatbelt, then maybe it would be much more easy. So you could do, you know, the licensing process could be a little bit more strict. So you could architecture that. You can put uh, like, you know, you know, bells and whistles when you go to an area that doesn't work or, you know, can go up to know how much, you know, feet and it stopped working. So I'm just wondering whether it's not something about a matter of architecture, not only education as well. For, for, for sure. So um, in terms of the, the reports, um, of course, people were much more aware of drones. They were even encouraged to phone the police if they saw one. Yes, that makes, of course, the number of reports to uh, increase quite rapidly. That being said, a few years back, we did um, uh, a test downtown Oslo with a simple um, drone detection system. So within over a period of four weeks, 
we detected close to 1400 drones within the no-fly zone in Oslo. Uh, in our um, police logs, we found only nine or ten. So it's something also about, they, for all I know, they have all already been there for many years, but we have not been looking for them. We, a great example on the same thing is we have a, a video from the National Day, the 17th of May, and the parade downtown Oslo, where we had a couple of drones um, and we captured the videos from the drones. And one, from one of them, it was hanging 20, 30 meters above the parade. And you could see from the footage that the security on the ground, it was quite impressive. It was a security police for every other meter with fences. And they were really looked in their sector. But no one looked up. No one. So it's something to do, I also think about our ability to look up and to look for drones. So I guess most likely the, the, the truth is somewhere in between all the stars and the drones. Yeah, this is really interesting. Anders Martinsen representing uh, uh, US Norway. So, um, question to Janotto and Arthur also. Um, how would you say the situation is in Norway compared to other countries? If you were to give us a timeline, like from 18 maybe until now, how has the situation, how was it and how is it now in Norway compared to other countries? And how are we dealing with it compared to other countries? I mean, we're probably not the only one thinking about drone as also a potential threat. Would you like to start off, Arthur? I, I can't... I don't think I'm in a place to give much of like a qualitative comparison. I'd say that in Norway it's a, quite a bit more organized, you know? Like for a while I was on the kind of like counter-drone conference circuit and, you know, uh, you'd... Uh, yeah, you'd... you'd I'd, Norway had a bit of an outsized presence, I think, in, in, on that circuit. You know, I mean, the, the United States, they'd always have the very serious FBI guys and Department of Homeland Security guys. Um, and, and then other countries, you know, I, I don't know. It's been a few years, but, like, you might have, like, Spain and they'd send someone from the Mossos de Esquadra or from the Guardia Civil and... They'd be like, oh, yeah, we're looking into it. And, you know, they'd have some slides. But I'd, I'd say Norway often, largely thanks to the presence of, of Jan, I, 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 I'm not being hyperbolic, did seem to be a little more organized. And I think Prio has assisted in that sense in terms of providing, like, a, a convening framework for these discussions to happen in Norway in a more organized way than they've happened, you know, certainly in other uh, European countries. United States, completely different ball game though. They, they were on this first. Israel as well. Yeah, Israel as well. They've been on it first. They've had, they've got bigger collection on incidents as well. And they just more securitized. So they have more readily available resources to throw at these kinds of things as soon as they happen. But I think it's worth noticing what's happened in Korsta amongst us, where you have Heimavarna. Uh, on rotation and the Norwegian Heimvern, a civil defense force. You know, they've sort of had not motivational problems, but problems of purpose for a couple of decades. Uh, and suddenly they have a purpose. 
So, so there is something constructive about this drone threat as well in terms of, of national security that you actually mobilize people to think they're contributing something and which I think might, you know, he's laughing. <laughs> Lots of people in their 40s getting a week off for work to sort of march back and forth. Um, but, but there's something interesting going on in the public mind about defense and threats, I think. And, and drones help visibilize the threat. Uh, do you want to add something? Or no, really? uh, I think that uh, Arthur summed it up very well. Um, we have, do have some benefits in Norway. We're quite a small country. We have been able to learn from others. We have been able to meet up and to join forces. Um, so there has been there ha have been some benefits um, for us. And of course, as you mentioned, perhaps drones are to a certain point of extent a kind of a symbol uh, on uh, the threat we are trying to to deal with. Um, so and of course everything to has everything that has to do with preparedness, it costs a lot of money. Like uh, the the Norwegian Home Civil Defense Guard, but there is a reason why you have them. There is a reason why you spend a lot of money planning for things that most likely will never happen. But because the day these things happen the cost for the society it's um it's it's immense so it's i think that's kind of a preparedness in a nutshell uh, so to say yeah so before uh, giving the floor to maria for the last question i just want to say that uh, so regarding how does norway compare to other countries we did the study at the request for of the european commission about uh, uh, preparedness of Sweden uh, when it comes to, to drone threats and we did this in um, throughout 2020 uh, and uh, and then when we we interviewed all the the relevant stakeholders so basically the equivalents of you know the Norwegian people that are here plus the ones that will come in, will be coming tomorrow uh, people at the police uh, you know all sorts of, of, of people and then we produced a report um, that we sent it was never published because this was an internal document to the European Commission and then the European Commission shared with the people in Sweden and then when they read it they said we weren't aware that this was the situation. So kind of they, they, the, the work was so divided and so compartmentalized that the, the different actors were, were not really aware of the work, of capabilities, etc. Many channels of communication were informal, so kind of the in terms of procedures, uh, you know, good practices, etc. There was really a, 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 a lot of room to improve. So when we did that study, we actually concluded that uh, uh, back then Norway was not you know, lagging behind the Sweden, which is always a good thing to say. You know. <laughs> so last question, Marie Louise, before we finish in uh, three minutes. But it also follows very nicely upon this. Uh, my name is Maria Louise Clausen. I come from the Danish Institute for International Studies. And we had similar drone um, observations at oil and gas fields. And I think one of the, there are two differences that I think has are relevant here as well. One was the communication aspect. And I think in Denmark, there's been a critique that there was no communication. Um, so that's a different approach. But, but perhaps my question is more because of this critical infrastructure, which of course crosses borders, I was wondering if you could say a bit about that aspect of it and how you share experience and coordinate. Um. Yeah, uh, we, we do share experiences and coordinate. So 
No later than last week, I was in Copenhagen uh, to meet up with my colleagues from the other Nordic countries. So, so, so we do have arenas for cooperation. In terms of how the Norwegian uh, police or the Norwegian government uh, chose to use media quite early, that is not up for me uh, to, to say. Um, what I can say that that we plan for to do this as convert as possible. But in the end, I do believe it was to a certain extent the need to uh, make the public feel secure that the drones are here, we are handling it. So it's something about sharing is caring um, from that side. Okay, very good. Uh, we will uh, end the, the panel now. We were not scheduled to have a big coffee break, so but of course feel free to to grab a coffee, run to the bathroom, do whatever you want uh, while we prepare the next session. Thanks so much, Yanoto, uh, that you took the time to come here. You prepared this presentation, but you're also very generous in answering the questions. Thanks to Kristin and Arthur. Very good, very good discussion, and thanks a lot. Hi, warm welcome to this uh, second panel. Uh, I'm very happy to be the one introducing this one. My name is Lisa and I am a research assistant here at PRIO, working on the regular project. And I'm going to be joined very soon by three amazing panelists. The first one being uh, Samar. <laughs> Samar is a doctoral researcher here at PRIO at the Regular Project, and he is a lawyer and also has a master's in information and communication technology. And the preliminary title of his PhD project is The Regulation of Drone Autonomy, Implications for the European Civil Airspace, which is supervised by Bruno and also Kristin Sandwick. And then the second one will be Dr. Chantal Lavaille, who works as a assistant professor and director at the Royal Military College St. Jean in Canada. <laughs> she holds a PhD in political science and is an expert on emerging security technologies, particularly drones in NATO and the EU. And she's also a member of the Regular Research Project here at Prio. And then we have Bruno, who is the leader of the Regular Research Project. This will... I. I think I'm going to say that word many times to say, regular, regular. <laughs> and he is a senior researcher here at PRIO and coordinates the security research group. Bruno is also a lawyer and holds a master's in European studies and a PhD in political science and is an expert on the intersections between technological development and security practices. So now with that brief introduction, I am looking forward to hear more from these people and we will start with Samar. Um, hello everyone, it's, it's good to be here and um, presented in front of you all, uh, my first paper. Uh, before that, as she described, I'm doing PhD uh, and uh, my focus is on particularly autonomy of, in drones um, with a focus on EU regulation. So, um, before I begin the main contents of my presentation, um, there's this book on the concept of law by Professor H.L. Uh, Earhart, which says that where he says that I can identify an elephant when I see it, but I cannot define it. Such is the problem that lawmakers face when they are trying to come up with definitions. Uh, that may be true for many things in law, but the concept of autonomy is, is not clearly that problem. It's a technological nuance that 
lawmakers are trying to describe in different regulations concerning civilian drones, and they are deviating from how it is perceived technically. That's what my first paper is about. Um, so my starting point is uh, the regulatory definition is found in EU regulation, and then I also found out how it is uh, being regulated in other jurisdictions, namely Australia and UK. So how you, European regulation defines autonomous operation is an autonomous operation is an operation during which an unmanned aircraft operates without the remote pilot being able to intervene straight away. Um, so it actually puts uh, the bar a little too high for autonomous operation where intervention has to be completely absent. When you see Australian regulation, similar pattern is followed where emphasis is again on pilot intervention and it further explains that there should be no ability for uh, the pilot to intervene during the flight. When you see UK regulations, they go through to further elaborate this concept. Um, they first uh, classify auto automated operations in terms of automated operation, highly automated operation and high authority automated operation. Um, and then they connect the concept of autonomy with high authority automated systems. So the emphasis as per UK regulators is on authority or delegation of that authority on drones. This is the, the definition for autonomous operation and a pretty wordy definition of high authority automated system where you would see the focus on human input. Now that's the difference between UK approach and other approaches where others are emphasizing on intervention whilst UK is emphasizing on human input, yet putting the bar for autonomous operation too high. Now why I'm saying it's too high an objective is because you would see how drones operate and when you would see the concept of autonomy, it's not an objective concept. It's context dependent, it's uh, spectral. When you say something, some system is autonomous, you need to provide further information. How autonomous are we talking about? What kind of autonomy is it exhibiting? Which none of these definitions for autonomous operation actually cater the need for. So from operational perspective, drone Drones uh, in civilian airspace would actually perform various functions. Uh, if it's urban delivery drone, it will deliver the package to a certain location, it will take off, it will go there, it will land, it will do so many things during its operation. And autonomy can be there in different layers. So you cannot just say it's autonomous, you have to completely say what, on what level autonomy is present. Um, and then if you see the technical literature uh, on human factor and ergonomics, where engineers and developers actually talk about these things, they never approach autonomy in such an objective way. They always come up with typology, taxonomy, some kind of prefixes, you know, semi-autonomous, fully autonomous, partially autonomous. So this is a deviation from the technical understanding. And lastly, if you see other autonomous systems like self-driving cars, like autonomous weapon systems and maritime ships, their also general conception of autonomy is more spectral than objective. Talking about self-driving cars, we have SAE levels, six levels, zero till five, which are pretty much recognized. For autonomous weapon systems, you always talk about that so-called OODA loop, human on the loop, in the loop, out of the loop. In the case of autonomous maritime ships, um, International Maritime Organization is trying to get the regulations at par 
when it comes to autonomous maritime ships with traditional regulation. And in their preparatory work, they define autonomous maritime ships as a maritime ship which, to a varying degree, operates without human control. Now, that qualifier gives more flexibility. This is something that is missing in drone regulations. But then, if, you, if I summarize the problem that I'm focusing on, is that regulatory definition is deviating from technical understanding, where technical understanding is more spectral, focuses on classification, and regulatory definitions are objective and sets high threshold. Here's an interesting bit. Two weeks ago, I was in Cologne in the European Drone Forum Conference, where EASA people were there. Um, different member state regulators were there, lobbyists were there and all that. Um, and I got to interview a few people from EASA, where I asked them this question, why do you deviate from this technical understanding? And it turned out that they knew technical understanding of this concept, uh, and they gave me more information about how autonomy can be there in different functions. Yet, they said that they don't care about this deviation for the reason that their goal is to regulate responsibility. Hence, the definitions that I showed you would say remote pilot not being able to intervene is there so that they could hold a person responsible for the operation. So while it actually is deviating from technical understanding, it's not their concern and it's deliberate. So it's not, a, it's not some, some mistake or some omission as I got to understand from those officials. But then, if you even have that goal, you are putting so much at stake by setting the, the bar too high. There come these regulatory implications. Number one, uh, already as Janot also talked about, uh, that there's this regulatory lag that faces technology, and you're furthering it by deliberately avoiding how certain term is actually being perceived in technical sense. And already autonomy word is populating in other instruments of EASA regulation. So once this uh, problem stays, and it actually, if they later on try to reconcile, it would be a trouble because it would perpetuate. So what would be autonomous? So then later on, if, if they want to regulate lesser autonomous versions of drones, they won't be able to do that because reconciliation would be difficult. And then this lag would, f would even increase further. Then you have ineffective safety oversight. We know with the experience with self-driving cars and other autonomous systems, when less human involvement is there, you have more safety and security issues. If you require a human to rarely respond, a human would respond rarely when required. That's what they say in these uh, human factors literature. And that's the case in 2018 with a self-driving car where human was able to apply brakes, did not apply the brakes at the right time because it was overly relying on the machine, on the car and it hit a person, a jaywalker, who died. So you have a lot of safety implications when you talk about lesser human control, and you are leaving that opportunity by setting the bar too high for autonomous operations. Um, then you have a potential disharmony with EU AI regulatory framework. Now, AI regulatory framework in EU requires human oversight for high-risk AI systems. These civilian drones would actually fall under the category of high-risk AI systems. How would this play out, that's, that's going to be a difficulty for the future because AI regulation would require human oversight to be there whilst drone regulation would still require, would still allow fully autonomous operation where human is not able to intervene at all. Lastly, what about drone traffic? 
it's already a problem for self-driving cars, which is considered as mixed up equipage system where a uh, problem where different levels of autonomy of cars would actually coexist together at the road. And how would that become a problem and how should they coordinate? We are leaving out that opportunity also. We are missing on that opportunity by not focusing on these different levels of autonomous drones. These are the implications and these are the, uh, this is the problem that I'm focusing on in my first paper. Um, this is a part of my overall PhD project, uh, which uh, I'm one year, uh, I've done the, the study for one year now. I will be focusing on other aspects also, like safety and security, um, European regulation of drone autonomy, and talking about European drone autonomy framework for safety regulation. Uh, thank you. I think I'm good to try. All good. Thank you very much, Samar. This was great. And I think we will, before, we're going to have some time for questions and comments after all three have presented. So mm -hmm. we will move on to Chantal next. Hi, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. Again, many thanks to Bruno, Samar, and all, uh, and Lisa for the organization. I'm happy to be with you physically, indeed, after all these years. Um, so for my, my presentation, I do not have a PowerPoint, so sorry for that. I decided to maybe engage the discussion with you about uh, the European strategy uh, on drones, what we are talking about, where, where, where are we in the discussion. So first of all, it's not a big scoop, but still next week will be the big launch and the EU drones days. The European Commission will finally uh, launch after a bit more, almost two years of consultations, the um, drone strategy 2.0 for, and the official title is interesting, for a smart and sustainable on-main aircraft ecosystem in Europe. And I should say, having followed uh, the evolutions of the discussion since an early stage uh, in the EU context, I was quite interested to see then what will come in this drone strategy 2.0, what will change, and um, to what extent uh, the EU will reorientate its action, and especially what, will, what uh, does it mean. Uh, the strategy is not yet available, but there's a lot of documentation from the consultation process. The program of the conference next week is already available, so we can already get a, a sign of the main objective and, and the structure uh, of this strategy. And I could also conduct interviews in June and in Brussels and with some actors involved in the discussion so I could get a sense of what is coming. So it's without the pretension that I share with you some, some thought. But what attracted first my attention was and what, when, what launched the process, the consultation process was a roadmap where the aim, the objective, the context was described by the commission about what is expected from the strategy. And we could, we could read from the beginning that following, and I will quote, following the adoption of a first EU regulatory framework for drones. Uh, so the aim of the strategy is to provide a forward-looking vision for the future holistic development of the sector. 
the drone strategy should provide a comprehensive policy package and address obstacles to the development of new drones applications, and, and so forth and so on, but also reaping synergies between civil and military use of drones. And then I get mega excited because from the beginning, it was so clearly defined as uh, the EU will, and especially as it's led by the European Commission, mainly look into the civil use of drones, and ideally these new small drones used for delivery of goods. So I thought, ah, something is moving. And you should know my background. For years I'm working on, I was looking into more security and defense sector. So I thought, great, my two big interests will finally <laughs> link, but what that means? So that was a bit the starting point of also waiting with interest this new strategy. So for this short presentation, should look the time, drawing on the really inspiring concept of socio-technological uh, imaginaries. My presentation, uh, in this presentation, I would like to draw um, your attention on the transformation in this discourse of the EU and the, the transformation in the EU narrative. Um, try to understand our vision of the world is shape in terms of technological innovation and progress, but especially how this is translated into a concrete action and policy framework, and especially to look at the mobilization of the knowledge of who are behind, but in all this process, what is the vision of the world? And this is quite interesting when we look at the evolution of the EU narrative regarding drones. So what I want to argue here modestly, but it's been in my thought since a while, is to see a shift in the EU narrative. And if we look at the content of the regulatory framework, we could see a, what is coming, a shift in the, the content and the scope and also in the ambition of this EU drones policy framework. So first, the content. Uh, the main feature so far have always been that the drones policy framework will really target civil use of drones. As I said, from the beginning was the small drones and specifically those who we still did not see in any sky so far, the drone delivery. So, but that was the main uh, target, but the civil uh, drones. And what is interesting is until the announcement of the drone strategy 2.0, there has been a real effort from the European Commission to really um, uh, make an effort to divide the civil and military dimension of the use of drones. Uh, and that was a real effort because we should go back 10, 15 years ago when the European Commission started to look at what could be the role of the European Union, what can be done. Go back then, the drone was developed and has been developed by the militaries. For the militaries, they were all in the media coverage or the US have been used drones for what we know. So uh, there was kind of first attempt from the Commission to try to make a clear differentiation about what are the civil drones and what will be the regulation about and what are probably the bad drones or the drones which are not included in any uh, potential EU regulation, namely the military drones. So this is already interesting when we look now the the strategy 2.0 to see that now oh, finally this idea to focus on the synergies between civil and military uh, technologies and use of drones should be also included because in the action plan on synergies between civil space and defense uh, industries, the drone strategy is presented as a tool to achieve also the objective uh, there. And what is interesting is the commission is not, of course, an homogeneous actor. There are many DGs. And as you know, for the drones aspect, it was DG move from an early stage 
not from the beginning, but early in the process. And the G-Move is what? It's about uh, civil aviation and uh, safety issues. So um, the, uh, the idea was already that obviously uh, it was about civil aviation. So uh, that was clearly uh, uh, clarified. So uh, having said that, it's interesting to see that despite it was clearly delimited as a, a civil, uh, the civil dimension, military have been always interested to look what the commission is doing, how much it will impact their world and especially the access to the airspace. And so they wanted to secure a flexible and mutual use of the airspace and to see how much this regulation might impact them, despite we know uh, uh, the regulation, it's a civil, uh, it's applied for the civil use, so it was never the case that it will uh, be um, applying to the military, but the interest was there. That was my point. And the military have been especially engaged for the use space regulations. So I just wanted to balance, but still the scope was civilians, uh, the content. Then the scope. If we look um, again from an early stage, it was interesting and it's really linked to my first point. It was that the idea of the integration of drones um, uh, in the European sky were becoming a new paradigm in aviation. So we were in the aviation uh, mindset and the civil aviation mindset. And uh, that was uh, the idea that it would create, of course, a new uh, new opportunities, but also it needed, it, uh, it's requiring an, uh, to adapt the approach compared to the traditional uh, main aviation um, approach and that's explained again why did you move was in charge transport mobility so so far all this makes sense uh, but of course evolution of technologies we don't speak just about now anymore the small drones for delivery purpose but as Kristen mentioned the uh, vertiport and all this evital new uh, trendy uh, uh, drones coming and uh, the fact that they will also transport people so that's also change um, uh, the narrative and the idea that the tradition, the current regulation need to be updated. So that's one thing. But what is interesting about the scope uh, is from the beginning, the European Commission pretend to use a comprehensive approach, namely that was the logic to open the market, you need the regulation. To have the regulation, you should see what is coming in terms of what kind of drone will be in the market, and then to push the research and uh, development. So the idea was already to have a comprehensive approach, but in this vision of civil drones and for civil aviation uh, purpose. The strategy drone 2.0 clearly want to include the initiative on drones uh, in a more broader framework, really in line with the green uh, deal, the smart sustainable mobility strategy, digital strategy. So far, it's fine. We are still in transport aviation, but clearly it's also mentioned also uh, in link with others' policies other policies, other EU policies. And there start to be, I don't know where I stand the corner, in fact, uh, uh, the, the link with other policy. And there I think we see a shift, what that means if we move it. Because so far the regulation was really, so as I said, looking in the civil aviation. And uh, for the use space regulation, it was clearly embedded in this uh, mobility strategy. And this was um, the 
Youth Space Package was adopted in April 2021. But this is, if we look just in one direction, on the civil drones and the work on the Commission for Regulatory Framework. What's happened just a few months before, it was in December 2020, uh, the, uh, uh, the counter-terrorist agenda where we could read for one of the first time in the EU documents that drones can be also a threat, and we just discussed it uh, in the first panel. And uh, what also can be said is the Home was quite motivated to be involved and already um, uh, was already involved to develop counter-drone scenarios for the upcoming new space and already uh, alarming the DG move that it will be also interesting to enlarge the scope. And uh, so it's interesting to see and the framework uh, where now the drone strategy 2.0 want to uh, located also the initiative. So slowly it's still in transport aspect, but we also include in this action plan with the synergy civil and military, but we also include uh, contra drones measures. So we already see slowly a shift in the, in the, the scope, and uh, which is also interesting to see how uh, the drone strategy seems to move. Um, so the EU initiative and drones and the center of other EU policies and, and initiative. So beyond transport uh, as such. And I just back quickly on one thing. It's interesting because so far, even until the EU space uh, regulation, we really see the drones and the uh, modernization of transport as even new spaces described as a laboratory, a laboratory for innovative technology services, again, for modernization of aviation. But then we see the shift to link with other policies. What are the other policies? Is the other narrative also on the defense capability developments? And that brings to my third point, I see the time is fine, on other ambitions of the EU and this is, I find quite interesting if at the beginning the ambition is to have a single market for drones, then you need a regulation, then of course you want the drone to be uh, safe and so you need the, to develop research technology. But now the discourse is shifting towards also the overall discourse uh, of the EU saying that, and this is interesting, in um, the roadmap, we clearly said that it's important that Europe safeguard is open strategic autonomy in the area. And we all know the strategic autonomy concept is quite uh, trendy at that moment, but to link this with the drone development, I find also how the EU want to have, to have also this comprehensive approach and how to uh, stand in this uh, booming sectors. And on that, um, the European Commission and the consultation process has used different way of consulting. And one of this was a traditional way to create a high level a group with expert, the Drones Leaders Group, who was established in September 2021, composed by stakeholders, including the European Defence Agency, Euro Control, Section a broad range of actors and chaired by a representative from DigiMove. My point is not this, but their reports start with a big paragraph saying what? 
Europe has ambition. So that is interesting. We still speak about the drones development, about a healthy planet. So Europe wants to become the first carbon neutral continent. So this is also part of this narrative. Drones are necessarily a good tool for this uh, green pact. But also in regard of the digitalization of economic to strengthen European competitiveness, the EU should strengthen its engagement in this sector. And most important, as my interest starts, also linking it to the reinforcement of the EU role as a geopolitical actors and referring, so in one of the key documents supporting the work of the Commission, this document <laughs> mentioned the strategic compass. If you could have a look of it, one of the main components is to invest in innovative technologies. And there we have an amazing narrative speaking about technological sovereignty, digital sovereignty, how the EU want also um, to develop its defense capabilities, but also to push in all these uh, innovative uh, technologies. And there we open the broad, the broad spectrum of not just the civil drones, but for instance, the male drones and all EU initiatives related to drones. So the idea seems logic to link all overall initiative related to drones, but it, cha it changed also this narrative and the way the socio-technological imaginaries that the EU has so far support to promote and maybe also for the social acceptance to see what uh, it's to expected in terms of the EU engagement in this sector. Now we have a more... Um, uh, inclusive and comprehensive view about uh, the bold action of the EU in this field. And on that, I should conclude to say that from the beginning, the Commission um, has managed to involve the different actors. But in this shift, what I've seen and also my interviews is that there's more and more actors pushing in the DG Move uh, initiative, which are coming from DG Home, but from also in the national levels, different actors involved and indeed and concerned by the misuse of drones and that it should be also better uh, highlighted this new drone strategy. And also the military are really interested in all the developments in terms of even uh, the civil regulatory framework can be an asset also for military to use the EU space uh, to fly their military drones uh, and even an interest from NATO. So I think this um, new comprehensive, it's also to come back to one of the key aspects of the socio-technological imaginary is this mobilization of knowledge. So to see how, how the new actors, the newcomers also in this policy, which transform also uh, maybe the, the first um, vision of what the EU can do in this field and to which lead now to this uh, broader vision. And I hope I did not spoke too long, so I will stop here. Thank you. And I'm happy if you have any questions. Thank you very much, Chantal. No, you were uh, good and it was great to hear everything uh, that you shared. So I will give the word now to Bruno and after we'll meet again back on stage, all of us. Yes. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, uh, my, my presentation has many contact points with uh, Chantal's and that's why we are speaking one after the other. Um, uh, just one or two, one or two notes. I think that the, the, the European dimension is, is pretty relevant 
for the context of this project, not only because you know it's part of our project description and part of what we promise to do, but also because uh, it is of uh, the highest relevance for for Norway because uh, Norway is not part of the EU, but it's it's part of the vast majority of the programs that deal with with the civilian airspace. Uh, so, kind of thinking in terms of of uh, Norway also means or, or also requires a general understanding on on how things happen in Brussels because that that uh, trickles down to how things happen in Norway as well. Um, so I'll be uh, putting an emphasis on uh, civil military iterations when it comes to, to drone technologies. So I'm not talking just about drones as platforms themselves. I'm you know, thinking about uh, drones in a general sense that also includes the payloads, which means kind of the, the other technologies that are on the drones that enable them to perform all sorts of functions. Uh, and I'm drawing some insights from the way that the EU deals with this. The object of, of my presentation is not the EU at all. It's just I just use empirical material from the EU in order to say something more general about how the drone sector is really becoming an extremely relevant space for civil uh, military interactions and how these civil military interactions have, have changed across time. Um, so, uh, I con kind of conveyed this, this uh, idea in the beginning, but I will uh, mention it again. I understand drones as, you know, in the same way that I understand any technology, as a socio-technical system. Okay, so I don't, and I don't, I, I look at the drone and I don't see just that material, physical object that is the product of the work by engineers and computer scientists and other, you know, people that work hands-on on the object. I see it as a product of a broader societal process that happens beforehand. So kind of that it's fundamental on the way that the drone is imagined, conceived of manufactured but also or what happens afterwards so kind of the 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 drone impacts on society in many different ways um i this is this is not uh, this is not a typo that, that I repeated those things in both columns. I wanted to say that in the first uh, when when in the first discussions about about drone technology, particularly when it comes to the kind of this civil military interplay. There was an idea that uh, we would see a lot of trans the drones would be a way to transfer ideas that emerged in the military into the civilian sphere. Okay, so this idea of seeing from above, the idea of permanent surveillance, this idea of using multiple senses that were kind of used, very useful in a military context, this is something that would be transferable to the civilian sphere. Okay, and within this logic, the technology would also be transferred. So kind of drone technology as something that initially had mostly military application, there was this idea that with time this would be transferred into, into the civilian sphere. And again, this also meant that there would be a transfer of knowledge and discursive power. So the idea that um, 
as something that emerged in a military context, as it translates into the civilian context, it will be, you know, the military ex experts, the strategists, the people from military R&D departments that would have the discursive power, that would have the knowledge that will then influence policy making. Okay? But actually, even though much of what I said has been verified and it's true, it is also true that things as time goes by and as drones become, you know, uh, uh, um, a normal way of doing a wider number of things, we start to see uh, transfers that go the other way around as well. Okay, and we see that uh, that. For example, when it comes to the transfer of technology and when it comes to some of the payloads that are used on drones, so if you understand drone as platforms, some of the things that you actually put on those platforms, they, are, they emerge in the civilian sector and then they, they are used uh, in military contexts. So that also means that when it comes to the transfer of knowledge and discursive power, we don't see an hegemony of the military sector. On, you know, on the other hand, we see more and more um, uh, civilian developers coming from the commercial sector having a, a, a wider understanding of the different components of the, of, the, of the drone, advancing quicker on the technological state of the art in some of the components. Uh, and then this also brings them discursive power and capacity to influence regulatory processes. So one of the things that was present in Chantal's presentation is how the process by which the European Union, for example, has developed and has revised this a drone strategy that will be presented next week and we are all very curious to see you know the text of it but it's quite clear that the issue of civil military relations will play a central role in that and this is new exactly as chantal was saying what uh, uh, the the discourse the regulatory efforts the logic was always from the part of the european commission was to put the emphasis on the civilian sector okay the drones as as having the capacity to generate high qualified jobs you know on society uh, the the drone as you know as contributing to a green transition agenda the drone as as contributing to decarbonization and, and to solve problems with traffic management, etc. And now we are seeing more and more an acknowledgement that this uh, civil-military interplay is actually central. And, and if you want to and if you want to have, for example, well-functioning uh, uh, airspace in the civilian sector, there might be occasions where actually the military might have to use it, okay? And, and, and you know, if instead of being here at uh, Prio's Philosopher's Hall, if we were around, you know, uh, a table at the bar, maybe Anoto could tell you more about how the police cooperates with the military. Okay, so these things were already a reality and it's actually interesting that they are becoming officially acknowledged. So, uh, that this also, don't, don't spend too much reading what is there uh, on the left, spend time reading what is here on the right. Um, no, but uh, uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, drones, a, a good way of, of making sense of all of, the, of this, from my perspective, is really to 
put at the center the idea of drones as a dual-use technology, okay? A technology that can have both military and civilian application. And of course, the dual-use character of a particular technology is something that, you know, from my epistemological standpoint, from my understanding of technology as a socio-technological system, it's something, the dual-use character is not something that is inherent in itself, you know? Otherwise, a knife to cut the bread is also a dual-use technology, you know? Uh, so what really makes a dual-use technology a dual-use technology is how we think about it and how we understand it and how we act upon it. And the, the, the discussion of, and the concept about dual-use technologies is something that emerged in the post-Second uh, uh, post World War um, in the context, obviously, of, you know, nuclear technology that was becoming increasingly relevant, you know, uh, as an energy, as a source of energy. But at the same time, the, the destructive power of which had been fully demonstrated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 2045. So for a few decades, when we talked about dual-use technology, we talked mostly about the risks, okay? Yes, advance that uh, cutting-edge research on biotechnology, but watch out because bad things can happen with those viruses, okay? Advance your, technology, your, your technological experimentation on genome modification, but watch out you know, if, this is, if this ends up in the wrong hands. So this, was, this used to be you know, uh, the so-called dual-use dilemma. So there are promises that come with technologies, but some of those technologies also carry with, with them very, very important risks. With time, we've witnessed uh, uh, shifts and an inversion of the dual-use dilemma. And before uh, saying that, let me just say the reason why I have this is, is because my, what I'm saying about uh, dual-use technologies is it's part of the chapter that I wrote to this book, uh, of which uh, Chantal is one of the one of the editors. So this 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 is interest. This is interesting for the ones that want to understand the regulation of emerging technologies in a European context. And there are several chapters on, on drones. So when we talk about the inversion of the dual-use dilemma, we talk about a tendency that started to occur in the late 80s, 1990s, etc., that started to put more emphasis on the, the, the potential benefits of risky technologies rather than highlighting their risks. Okay, and this is this is something that can be explained by 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 many many factors, uh, but one of them is precisely this understanding that emerging technologies have the capacity to impact positively on society. They can ha have the capacity to resolve complex problems. It can have the capacity to, you know. Uh, interact with all those different policy agendas that I just mentioned in the EU context. You know, energy, green energy transition, urban mobility, you know, uh, distribution of packages, precise agriculture, etc. Um, and so, uh, what the 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 way that 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 uh, the European Commission has dealt with this issue within the drone sector and you know along the lines of what Chantal uh, was saying is very much an illustration of how 
our understanding of you know dual use dual use technologies can change from one moment to the other that's why i think it's really fundamental you know to really highlight sociological political aspects of technology okay when we talk about regulation we cannot think about regulation just in terms you know of just like arid black letter of the law i think it's much more interesting that we try to interrogate how you know how did we come to where we are you know why did the eu you know the different the eu regulatory framework for drones in 2019 highlighted those particular issues why were there issues that were left outside you know who participates in these processes who are the ones that are vested with authority discursive power and have the capacity to influence these processes so um I think that you know this is a different this is this is a kind of a, a diverse audience that we have that we have here today. We have academics, we, we have practitioners, we have technological developers. So it's a bit difficult for me to strike the right balance between saying something that is you know empirically empirically interesting, but also theoretically grounded. And I hope that uh, this is not too boring. Um, I want to tell you something more about the actual technologies, okay? So what is it that we talk about when we talk about, you know, dual use technologies in the drone sector and the transfer between the civilian sector and the military sector? Here is a non-exhaustive list of, you know, some of the most important transfer routes in drone technologies. When it comes to civilian technologies with a potential for military application, we have off-the-shelf civil drones to lower acquisition costs. You see, for example, now how in the, in the war in Ukraine, we've seen plenty of these off-the-shelf drones that are actually used in combat operations. Okay? Um, uh, vertical takeoff and landing uh, developments, which, which are kind of advancing quite a lot in the civilian sector, but might have military application as well, by all means. Uh, this tendency to have increasingly small uh, electronic components. So the cutting edge here is in the commercial sector. It's not on the military sector. And please, the two of you, uh, uh, particularly you, Bruno, just add up to this and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so these are some examples. On, on, the, on the military technology with potential for civilian application, the issue of noise can be actually quite relevant. We've talked about noise already here. Christine, Anna has been mentioning it uh, uh, throughout the week. Um, the low noise propellers you know that are so relevant in the military context are actually something that can be imported into the civilian sector um, you know uh, this manned unmanned teaming uh, algorithms to ensure safety and situational awareness etc so these are some examples of how this this uh, this different components of the drone uh, are being developed in you know both uh, both domains and how they transfer. Now, it's very important that we also bring a little bit of nuance to this. So we cannot understand the industry or the commercial sector as being, you know, a monolithic uh, unit. At the same time, we, can also we cannot understand the military as just one unit, okay? Even within a country, 
and, and not to mention that things are very different from country to country, from region to region, etc. Even within the same country, you, we have different branches within the military, you know, pushing things in different ways. And the same applies in the commercial sector by all means, even much more. So it's, it's important that, from my perspective, it's important that we know about this, but it's also a bit important that we, that we don't take everything just as, uh, at face val value and that we do not uh, overgeneralize. Um, so when we talk about, uh, and, and the, the next two slides, uh, I will go a bit uh, quickly over them. Um, these are, uh, this is research that uh, I made for the European, I made with, with other colleagues at PRIO uh, at, uh, for the European Commission, providing inputs to the drone strategy 2.0. I'm actually very curious to see how much of our ideas eventually make it or nothing at all. Um, but we were, we were, we were, I know that the, the civil military component will be a big part of the drone strategy because the European Commission kept on putting pressure on us to deliver more and more on that. And that was Prio's case study, actually. So, um, so it was, it was uh, over a beer, I can tell you more about that. Um, so when we talk about the promises of civil-military research and development cooperation, well, we identified those aspects. So in the civilian sector, uh, development of European com competitiveness, this is a fact, you know, uh, uh, a drone industry is an industry that employs highly qualified uh, workers. So it can, it can be a, a trigger to that, uh, to that process. Uh, advances basic research, uh, promotes some industrial objectives, even though industrial objectives is also something that we should break down into, into uh, different strands. Uh, has the potential to increase societal resilience related to better uh, preparedness to disaster response and the promotion of intra-European cooperation in the fields of research and development. So this is, this is uh, through, through the drones, this is actually very interesting. The drones were actually, I would say, the main technology through which the European Union managed to foster cross-national uh, cross cooperation in, develop in developing security technologies in Europe. So throughout, you know, between, I would say, 2004, 2005, up until today, the European Union has spent uh, hundreds of millions of, of euros in funding R&D in the drone sector, and this has, has been instrumental in creating a pan-European uh, industrial uh, cooperation in, in uh, these types of technologies. Um, it also has some promises in the military sector to promote a needs-based development of defense and military technology. This is normally a big problem. It's very often that the industry comes with products, and those products are not what the military actually needs. I think that perhaps the police feels the same sometimes. Um, and then this also, in theory, enables the EU to become st standard setter in emerging technologies and not just 
a standard follower. So if you have if you have the technological cutting edge, if you are you know more aware of the potentials and the pitfalls of technology, you can actually, if you want, increase your arms control diplomacy. Do something about regulating these technologies. Uh, of course, there are still a lot of challenges that also come from civil-military cooperation. So it's not just about promises, it's actually a lot of challenges. And we don't have too much time for that, but in the civilian sector, we st and, and please, uh, Bruno, I'd like to hear from you about that, we understand that there are still some re reputation costs surrounding drone technology. So in some en encounters that we have with the industry, we still hear you know, that drones have a bad reputation. People hear drones and think surveillance, they think targeted killings, they think, you know, noise, they, they think intromission, etc. And this, this is, this is, a, this is a, a, a challenge. Uh, there's also, at the more technical level, issues with wider technological infrastructure. So you might want to have, you know, cutting-edge communication system on a drone, but then if your 5G infrastructure supplier, you know, is a supplier that you cannot really trust, then it opens up a new set of security problems. And then two things that I would really like to highlight to, to conclude, which is the, the danger of growing militarization of law enforcement. And I think that we will hear more about this from, from Arthur tomorrow. But also very important to, to us at PRIO is the potential of militarization of scientific research. So precisely because it is in the civilian sector that a lot of the cutting-edge research is happening, we see more and more incentives from the military in you know, fostering R&D in universities, in the institute sector, to develop technology that then will, will become militarized. Um, and uh, in 2018, I, th I think there was an, an article in Nature that was you know, highlighting this issue called Military Work Threatened Science. And even though I think that we do not necessarily need to over-problematize this, this is certainly a tendency that, uh, that we need to keep our, our eyes on. Uh, I have uh, exceeded my time. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, and I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you, for great presentations. It was very interesting to listen. And I'm sure many other people in the room also have questions they want to ask and you will be able to do so so just keep them for a little little while first i just wanted to make uh, a brief comment i uh, from my own work i'm not a drone specialist in in any way but i do research some emerging technologies in the eu context and I found it very interesting how Bruno at the end, for me at least, brought the conversation together by pointing out the politics of regulation, which is, after all, the title of this panel, uh, the EU context, regulations and politics. And I noticed this when Chantal, you were speaking about the market and the uh, collaboration between market and regulation and how the two interact with each other. And I would want to hear more from you about uh, how much is the EU regulation influenced by actors who do want a liberal market and perhaps Samar as well from your expertise with 
the harmony that the EU is trying to create with its drone regulations, does it actually cause harmony? And do people want harmony in a way? Or is, are they trying to make some harmony, but not completely? So these are my first two initial questions for you. And I think we will just start there and open from, from questions from you guys as well. So um, please. Uh, from an early stage, and I, I was able to attend many of the high-level conference on drones organized by the EU, where you, uh, yeah, there were all people from the industries, all the stakeholders, and uh, and I can make even a link beyond the EU. I had the chance to attend an ICAO in Montreal last week and the week before two big conference on drones, and it's really interesting to hear the similar narrative. If you want to develop. Uh, the use of drones, but the market safety is the key rule. So, and to have safety, you need to have a clear regulation, and it's all related to the public acceptance. And uh, I think this is there from the beginning about then the need for regulation, because I think the entry point or the Commission get involved. It, it was not to DG move; it was to DG uh, trade because it was the potential, the economic potential of the drones market. But then quickly it came obvious that you will never have a, a competitive market or a market if the rules are not clear, because compared to other sector, there were no regulation or just in a few European states, but even in the early stage compared to so many other domains. So that was also for the EU to jump in a, a new area to be developed. But the idea that everything should start by the regulation and to more specifically answer the question about the role of the industry, they are mainly the stakeholder behind. We often say this cliche, the commission is pushed by the industry. And it's not just by the industry, but of course, it's because this logic, the industry has a clear interest to see if we want to, uh, to push our market, we need to make sure that the public will buy it. To buy it, they need to be safe, to be safe, to have the public acceptance is like this. And regulation was always big in the picture. And I think that's how it came. So I will stop here, but I'm happy if there's more questions. I can, I can comment on the harmonization thing. So. Um, I talked with this uh, this lobbyist at the same conference, and uh, she works uh, around uh, the standardization bodies for drones, and she's herself a part of industry. Um, and I asked her this question, how does it feel when this 2019 regulations are around, and now there's a harmonized approach? And I got a very interesting answer. She said that things have got even more fragmented since the regulations come, came about. So there's this difference of um, implementation, application, understanding, everything. Uh, so even though the regulations are harmonized, um, your EU or you know, EASA, or because again, EEA is also a part of that regulatory framework, are not at the same page. And it seems very difficult. Um, and of course, when it comes to the market, of course, they're, they are influencing regulations a lot. That's the, that's the impression that you get. I mean, what values are there in the regulation, right? Why are they prioritizing certain things? And why are certain things excluded? It's this push um, from the private, uh, private uh, players. Um, there's this standardization body called JARUS, Joint Authorities Rule something. That's the whole big uh, terminology for that. And there you have this participation from 
national and regional aviation bodies, but at the same time, industry. And EASA relies too much on that body. So you ask them any question and they defer it, oh yeah, Jarus is working on that. And we're gonna just replicate that in our regulation. So when you see that kind of tendency and this over-reliance on private players, it's, it shows you know where the influence actually lies. Um, that's, that's my impression at least. On, on this harmonization and how does it uh, how is it playing out with the market and all? Uh, could I uh, regarding this? Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, <laughs> Ivan. But uh, regarding this, I think this this was uh, when 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 Samar mentioned this that came out of his interview that that uh, people that he spoke with uh, uh, tell them that they get the impression that even though there is this push for harmonization you know across the eu that there is still a lot of uh, you know different understandings different timings of implementation etc uh, could you could you give your your views about that do you know you know of course you do your work with the civil aviation authority but of course you are you are part of this wider european discussion how how do, how do you see it Ivan Ocknes from the Norwegian Civil Aviation Authorities. Um, thank you for putting me on the spot. I'll be very, very careful. I was in Cologne. I've been talking to EASA for uh, for a long time. I was a part of the team developing the, uh, the Norwegian uh, regulation in 2016, 2015, 16. So... Um, <coughs> I was excited and also a bit sad when the um, EU regulations came because we had an operator-focused regulation from 2016 and the EU regulation is an uh, operation-centric uh, regulation and, and a whole set of regulations. So it's, it's actually um, my personal opinion is that the regulation is so complicated that it's in the end only the operator that knows whether he is um, in or out of, of regulations. Um, so it's even hard for Yanotto and his people to know uh, exactly. You, you need a calculator with a, with a really um, uh, complicated um, algorithm. So um, I think it's been... Uh, to, I think it's possibly too complicated now and that's why uh, the, um, the harmonization is go not going as EASA... Uh, hoped for and the EU hoped for. And uh, another thing, it's really interesting to hear you say that uh, they depend too much on yours. I agree, um, but uh, let's see how, how things play out. Because um, I've been asking uh, the Commission um, years ago uh, whether if they would like a perfect uh, system, especially for UTM, which is one of my um, uh, focus areas, uh, would you like a perfect system or would you like a system that is, um, you know, um, that does not have monopoly, you know, like we have an ATM today? Would you like a perfect system that actually works or would you like a system where you can have competitors uh, compete in the same airspace? And of course, uh, we know uh, um, Euro, uh, EU and, and their mottos on, on you know, persons and, and, and goods and services and they would like... Um, a less than perfect system that offers, um, uh, you know, to be competitive or, or several companies competing. So I don't think I answered your question, but, you know, we acknowledge that there is a lot of different practices around Europe. Uh, and, and I think maybe we were uh, quite early uh, with uh, developing our national regulation. So I think uh, this... Um, 
not harmonizing uh, has to do with the fact that industry now has sped up. There is a market now. It was not a market, you know, at least um, a functioning market before 2019. So that's part of the issue, I guess. Thank you very much, Ivan. We wanted a comment. Yeah, yeah just I'll, I'll try to make it short, but I represent the industry, so it's, it's hard not to not <laughs> be quiet here. So just take away the mic when I'm getting keeping it too long. So I fully support Ivan that, I mean, you need a PhD if you're a police officer in addition to actually make sure that you are stopping the right people to ensure the right thing or not to doing the right thing because it's not a it's not a very straightforward for them to actually understand that whether you have the, the permit to do what you're entitled to do, whether you are stopped on the street for flying or not. I mean, I could take a 250 gram drone flying legally inside the city of Oslo without actually many of the police officers knowing that I'm, I'm able to do so, of course, without the, the restriction area. But I'm actually, according to the EU regulation, I could do so legally. It doesn't mean that I should do it, but according to the rules, I could. But of course, I shouldn't. That's another issue. But when it comes to the industry's perspective, we need to keep in mind who are we talking about. So who is the Norwegian industry that we are also here considering? Well, imagine this you have about 17,505, precisely, according to the registry in uh, October 5th, that signed up on the mandatory registry because they bought a drone and it had a camera and it weighed, uh, well, it either had a drone and it weighed above 250 grams. So it is mandatory for them to register. And many of them, they don't consider themselves as aviators. They just think that, oh, well, I registered. Um, I'm entitled to fly. I'm entitled. I have the right to fly. But that doesn't mean that they have the skill, the knowledge, and then presume that they, they understand themselves as, as aviators. So it's about educating them, but also understanding that they don't care too much about regulations on what level we're talking about now. But the 2,000, which is in specific categories, they might be very influenced about our type of discussion that we have today. And they are more also the ones that are having operational where there is a business case for them. But many, which is in open category, which is also the high volume, but also the ones that we should really care about and educate, they are not necessarily well represented. But the ones that truly are making money, they don't have time to, they don't spend too much time in looking into harmonization and regulation. They just, they just fly. And keep in mind that things in Norway, it works pretty well. It does. It's a really good relationship with the CAA and Avinu and the Ministry of Transport. Things are working pretty well. It doesn't mean that there is no reason for us not to be concerned, because there are things we need to address, which we're doing now. But things are going pretty well. But the users that we're talking about, they are out flying as we are talking about harmonization. Thank you very much, Anders. Yes, uh, you will be able to respond. And then we also have uh, two comments up here after that. It's it's um, actually um, talking as a uh, as a civilian uh, in this relation. It's it's quite a funny uh, discussion about this. I, I think uh, Jonato is right that you should have some kind of of leaflet. Uh, following the drone when you buy it but uh, i'm pretty sure i didn't have to show my driving license to the to the car dealer when i bought a car and i i i'm 
pretty certain that you don't have to show a, a pilot's license when you buy an aircraft. So we are working with, with you know, um, educating the public, but it's not really interesting enough. I think sometimes when we had all these drone sightings and, you know, we were in the headlines uh, trying to figure out how to solve this, that's... Uh, perhaps uh, one of the, the weaknesses about how, how we at least um, achieve uh, public education. Because it, it's not interesting before it, it's almost a crisis, you know, or even a crisis. So, so um, I think we will, we will look into that. But we are doing public education every day and we try to make it more efficient. But, but in, in some respects, we're not succeeding. Thank you very much. Yes, Bruno, we'll get the word now. Uh, thank you. I'm Bruno Boucher from Nordic Alman. We are a Norwegian-based operator and we operate in about 20 countries around the world. So it's not only Norway, but it's other places. So first of all, thank you. Um, and tomorrow I will speak, I will tell more. But just today we talk about regulation and everything. Why do we do that? Okay, Regulation has a purpose, safety. We don't want to kill people on the ground and we don't want to hit stuff flying in the air. That's the base. That's why we do the regulation. And We follow rules so that all the stakeholders can, well, live happy together and not hit, not hit each other. Uh, look at the road. In this part of the world, we drive on the right side of the road. Why do we do that? There's a rule, because if we don't follow the rules, it's going to hurt. So it's the same thing for the air. We need to figure out what regulation is necessary for all of us to be happy, do what we want to do, and not hurt anyone else. That That's more or less the basis. And... After that, how the rule is and who does that and why, that, that, that's the next step. But that's the base for that. I was, sometimes I think we forget that stuff. Uh, I don't know what I do with that. I'm Katrin Maurer from the University of Southern Denmark and I'm uh, in the humanities and cultural studies and uh, I'm, more in I'm interested in also what narratives we construct about technology, especially about drone technology, what stories are we telling each other uh, about the technological pro progress or as drones like kind of a techno fix for, for many uh, problems in our societies. And on that note, I had a question about autonomy, which I thought was a very interesting um, presentation you gave. And if I understood it correctly, then uh, on an operational basis, Uh, there is much more a differentiation about uh, autonomy, sort of much more a contextualization, uh, thinking with the human in the loop rather than on the level of regulation. Did, did I get that right? And if yes, then um, are there really uh, sort of discussions out there that drones could be an autonomous form of technology? I mean, what does that actually uh, mean? I mean, uh, uh, is there the idea that they would steer themselves? Because with that, then as regulators, I guess you would also sort of give away an ethical responsibility as a sort of putting it into the machine. And are there sort of discussions about also what notions of, of, of autonomy are we talking about? Is there autonomy at all? Yeah. Yeah. So, so around, you, you got that right. That's, that's my exactly point, that operationally, autonomy can be there, and it's not just a straightforward objective concept. Um, uh, when it comes to the discussion around it, I mean, in, in regulatory circles, they don't care about it. It's something that is a thing of some distant future for them, 
and they they don't want to grapple this issue at this point. But you're absolutely right. Um, so the situation is that you allow, from regulatory perspective, those operations where human is not there, which is which raises a lot of ethical concerns. Um, and and yeah, if you actually would have some kind of flexibility, or you know you would frame the regulation regulatory provision in a way, there could be this you can tackle this issue. But when you talk with these uh, with them about automation or autonomy and how do you want to regulate it, oh, that's that's the that's a problem of the future. We're not concerned with that. And it's all about open, specific, certified categories, you know, uh, open category and specific category. These are different categories of operations in the drone regulation. So you don't find that kind of discussion so often. Uh, but if I were to actually give you my opinion on what is autonomy, um, this is, that's the thing. It's you are actually talking about independent action by a drone. Now, what kind of action could that be? When we talk about that, mostly it comes down to this uh, specific feature of detect and avoid, where the drone is flying, detects an object, avoids it, and goes on its path. This can be automated, where you feed in the data, okay? But then you can also make it autonomous, you know, any kind of thing. Have we reached that stage yet? In my research, so far as I have seen these kind of drones, particularly urban delivery drones by Google and, and, and um, Mana drones in Ireland, they are fully automated. They haven't reached that autonomy stage. If, if I could give you an example of autonomy, yeah, autonomy could be there when you have those drones on agriculture where they collect the data and then process it and then provides actionable intelligence. Now, how that whole process is happening, you know, what kind of process is there in collection and then processing and then coming up with actionable intelligence, oh, this needs more, this is, uh, there's this problem in these crops and whatnot, that there you find autonomy. It could be under the control of a human, but that part of the operation is autonomous, if that makes it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. I think we will move on to Kristin, and then there's another question from Miriam in the back there. Yeah, uh, it was just, just a comment on the comment on regulation. So I don't think that's why we regulate. I mean, I think we regulate partly because of that, right? But but we also regulate because, you know, something, literally we're creating value out of thin air here, right? So, you know, someone is making a business model of someone else have to live with noise, for example, or concerns, or or actual surveillance and, uh, and all of that stuff, right? So, so I mean, that's why we regulate. And, and I think if, if the industry wants this ecosystem to fly, I, I think, you know, we have to play ball and have these uncomfortable conversations and in, engage in this democratic deliberation every step of the way and, and, you know, accept that in some instances this airspace will not be open, but maybe this airspace will be opened. And, and just to get viability, uh, so, so I, I, you know, we regulate for so many things, but primarily because, for the public at large, there will be very little benefit for, from this for the foreseeable future, and then maybe one day. But but there's just a lot to justify here, so I think that's why we regulate. Does any of you wanted to respond to Kristen's now? No. Okay. Well, I think I will respond to that. I'm a colleague of Kristen at the University of Oslo. My name is Miriam. I work on digitization and the influence that has on people seeking refuge. Um, and I wanted to, in that sense, also tap into what Mr. Bruno was saying and other Mr. Bruno. Um, yes. So 
in that sense, like you started speaking of the 1990s in which there was this sort of switch of like the benefits of risky technologies. And in that, in that sense, talking about safety, security, marketization is like who benefits and risks for whom, what, right? And so, and I was wondering to what extent you, Chantal and Bruno sort of also saw that, especially since the war in Ukraine, there has been in that sense more acceptance of the public to, you know, if we talk about the sort of um, acceptance of the public in regards to particular usage of drones, to what extent do you feel that that has or is shifting now or as we speak? So that's my question. Do you want to say something, Mr. Bruno? No, <laughs> no. I, I can, I can say something. Yes, um, I think that's extremely nicely put, and I think that you have a point that um, the war in Ukraine is, uh, is, is, is. I would say it's bringing back some momentum to drones when it comes to, to acceptance and acceptability, um, and and there is and that the, there are. Th there is something happening now. And of course, uh, at an anecdotal level, I think that uh, these groups of people in different countries uh, pulling up, you know, crowdsourcing uh, initiatives to buy Bayraktar drones to give the Ukrainian army. I think it's, 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 quite a, it's quite an extraordinary example of this. Of course, it's not fully representative, but, but I think that drones have entered uh, the kind of in a way that they have re-entered uh, a place where they they are seen as as being on the side of the good guys. I'm very sorry to simplify, but actually I think that this is part of, part of the dynamic uh, because the, there has been a lot of a lot of discussion about democratization of of, of drones, particularly in in military contexts. So kind of on how you know, the increasing availability of military drones makes them uh, affordable by countries that have, you know, not so big military budgets and how this change, uh, the, uh, you know, international relations in a way. Uh, and I think that the, the case of the Ukraine, with particularly with these with this Turkish drones on the Ukrainian side and the Iranian drones on the Russian side, they are really kind of bringing some, some nuance to this. I can also say that uh, just 10 days ago, I spent uh, a week in Turkey researching on Turkish drones, precisely because I, I, I feel that there is, there is something there. And um, of course, I, int I interviewed mostly people that think that uh, drones are spectacular for for Turkey, you know, like that give bring all sorts of benefits, you know, reputation, soft soft power, you know, actual negotiating power uh, at the table, very good for uh, for for the civil military sector, etc. So the I I think so in in short I think that the the, the Ukraine war has has brought new elements for this. They are not all in the same direction, but they, they, they made uh, drones uh, more relevant in a way in that particular uh, part of, of, of the world. Of course, as, as, as we could see from, from Yanotto's uh, presentation and also from what happened in Sweden in the beginning of the year, a few weeks before the start of the war, uh, drones also became 
a source of concern in other parts of the world, of course. Uh, so, so these things, they always go in multiple directions. People are affected by drones in many different ways. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I think that's basically what I wanted to say. I also I think that uh, uh, Ivan wants to add something. I don't know. But I wanted to give Chantal an option to yeah, also. Sure. Maybe just a few words on the public acceptance. Uh, maybe to balance a bit what Bruno said, uh, it's really a personal concern about societal acceptance. From an early stage of my research, I was always surprised by inside the EU or let's say clearly in DG move, they were always saying oh, public acceptance, it's so important. It was a concern from an early stage, even 2008-9, the first consultation, it was already raised as the main thing also because it will fly in the airspace and the safety aspect, so that was clear. But I was always concerned, okay, fine, you identify it, but how you can measure it or how you can take all this issue concretely I mean, focus group can be interesting, but I was always concerned, in fact, if no actors are homogenous, the public neither. So to who you address and for what exactly? And it's maybe related to many comments Kristen did uh, on, on that. I mean, there are so many potentialities with drones. So maybe the public could be, oh, for the war in Ukraine is super far. If I take my perspective from Canada, people might say, oh, it have helped uh, the citizen in Ukraine to take arms and even to take a drones without being expert and they can fly and use it. But I think it's such a complex issue to say, yeah, public acceptance check is done because in many places I've been, we still don't see any drones in the sky in a massive way, which will really change the mindset of people to say, okay, there we are. And nobody really understood what we are talking about. Maybe to come back to the comments made by Art, so we all speak so much about drones, maybe for us it makes kind of sense, but for most of the public, I mean, it's kind of fancy and the bus thing, uh, the drones you can buy the supermarket. Most of people finally did not really have one or they use one, then it get, they get bored or the regulation make them the discourage. So I don't see how we can still measure the public acceptance and I don't see a, a big over to identify it or you can really address it in a concrete way. And I will just end this. I was really expecting something at the EU level. And then finally came this EASA studies on the public acceptance or the societal concern, or I don't know how they frame it. And honestly, I find it was so disappointing. They made some focus group a bit, I don't know, they came with a, a fancy number to say, yes, public acceptance check. Most of people, they say they are super enthusiastic, but we still don't know. It was about delivery of, uh, uh, of goods and did not really work out. Maybe now it will be about helicopter. Maybe it will not come out neither. Uh, there is many things and the imagination of peoples, but and in context of war, we are still confused about the use, is the civil drones used in the military context? And recently, I, I chair um, a one table on that topic. And at the end of the, the conference, many ones say it was not really a game changer. It did not change the, the scope of the war, despite it's a new tool. It's remained as a tool, but in a specific context. But how you measure the public acceptance? And, and again, I can finish to how I start, uh, who, to whom we are talking about and about what. For me, it's still not clear. So I'm always confused about this question after Many years working on the topic, I'm still, I feel we are back to the start because it's still not clear yet even what about the integration of drones. Uh, Thank you, Chantal. We will now take a super short comment from Edwin and that unfortunately has to be the last one for the day.
Okay, I'll try to be super short. I just wanted to support the comment on the, why we regulate. Because we regulate because we want to be an instigator for safe, socially beneficial and sustainable aviation. So, and safety is paramount, it's important, but it's mm, uh, uh, actually just as important to be uh, uh, beneficial to the society and sustainable. Unfortunately, that means that the, um, the boundaries between civil and military use of drones is almost non-existing uh, um, uh, in some parts of Europe now. Uh, we see it, you mentioned it, Bruno, um, uh, what benefits society in Ukraine uh, is, um, um, unfortunately, to use drones as weapons, even civilian drones as weapons. So, and, but uh, in the end, uh, if we succeed in uh, bringing about a safe, socially beneficial and sustainable aviation, I think public acceptance will come along as a byproduct, an important byproduct. But, uh, but that's our main goal, uh, I think. I will touch on it uh, in tomorrow uh, when I, I, I hope to, to uh, you know, clarify that a little bit. So, but that's, that's my comment. Thank you for letting me sneak in. Um, my name's Anna Jackman and I'm a lecturer from the University of Reading in the UK. Um, just say if I'm speaking too close to the microphone, please. Okay, okay, good, thank you. Um, so uh, it's been really interesting to see a theme kind of emerge across today around deepening our understandings either as researchers or around education in relation to the general public on drones and drone threats. And as Lise um, kind of reflected really nicely, this panel has focused on the political dimensions of regulation in really interesting ways. Um, so thank you to all the speakers. Um, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about some of the challenges that you faced in researching these political dimensions of regulation, maybe discuss some of the barriers or limits that you see for the way that we understand the issues that you've discussed, because I think that might be quite productive for us to just think about um, over today and tomorrow. Thanks. Thank you, Anna. I think we will collect the three questions and then have a sum up at the end. So, Kristin, first. I, I think the longer I work on this, the more puzzled I am by this public acceptance business. Because it's like, I'm just sitting here and, and Bruno's going to fly the drone over my head until I say yes. I mean, I think we're gotten past in society generally, those sort of... So, so I just wonder if there's a way of reframing that to democratic deliberation or something which implies more engaged process and, and I think for the industry probably also a better idea uh, more government investment in that process as part of governance uh, you know as, as the Norwegian government sees airspace as something they have to govern in a different way than trying to get the population just to accept um, I don't quite know how we can reframe this but but I would like to get rid of this sort of very passive idea of, of the stakeholders <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to kill that cat when it comes to. Seems like there is an impression that there is no public acceptance in Norway for drones, but we've been monitoring this in 2015, and tomorrow I'll share that data with you. But I mean, just think of this. Think of a number between zero and 100, and ask you yourself this question. Would you accept that the police would be using drones for the purpose of monitoring a crowd control if there is a situation occurring in your neighborhood? Think of a number. Raise your hand, those of you are above 50. Per 50. You're, no, you, you personally. 
Okay, so the survey that we did back after the Norwegian police tested this as a drone as first responder in Oslo was 82%. Four out of five Norwegians think it's a brilliant idea. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about when you guys get to viable business model. This is not how it's going to look. And you're not it is. Drone as first responders is, is a business model already established exactly. all over Everything the world. Else, it's going to be a much larger burden on the public, right? So, so that acceptance, not the acceptance of having my life saved from murder. Second part, think of a number again from zero to 100. If the police again is using the drone for the same purpose, do you trust that they will use their data according to the regulation and the laws? In the same survey, 87% said, yeah, I believe and I trust that they will. <laughs> That's in, yeah, of course, we haven't monitored anywhere else. This is no way. But this is the police. And I'll give you other examples tomorrow so you can see the trend for how this relates. And I think that's a relevant aspect to bring with us here. Thank you so much. We got some brilliant uh, reflections and points made here today. Do you want to say something, Bruno? Uh, I, think, uh, and I think that your question opens up for so much that can, can we just uh, discuss afterwards? Because otherwise, yeah, it's uh, 10 minutes, yeah. <laughs> Yes, great question from Anna. And I think we will have many other questions and continue these conversations tomorrow as well. Hopefully many of you will join us then. So I want to say thank you to the panelists and thank you guys for joining in today and being engaged. It was uh, great. Thank you.